We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give a special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Perpetual Chess listeners, two quick announcements before we get to this week's very fun interview with top Dutch player Jordan von Forest. Number one, as Jordan and I discuss, How to Chess Season 3 is coming soon. The release date is TBD, but we are recording them now. Jordan is a guest among many others. So make sure you are subscribed to the separate How to Chess podcast feed or to the Chessable YouTube channel or better yet, both. How to Chess, of course, is a chess improvement focused, shorter form podcast that you can also find on YouTube. Number two, uh, just your periodic reminder to make sure you're subscribed to the Perpetual Chess Link Fest, which is a weekly Friday email that summarizes or links to the best chess news stories I've read, the best chess blog posts I've read, the occasional video or podcast. But we try to just keep it short and keep you informed. And all you have to do is follow the link in the show description and submit your email address to get those. So without further ado, let's get you to this interview with Grandmaster Jordan Van Forst. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. I'm honored to be joined by a distinguished young guest this week. He is the 2016 Dutch National Champion, 2021 Tata Steel Masters Champion, the Dutch number two. He's a top 50 player in the world with a peak rating of 27.15. He's also worked on Team Magnus, uh, worked extensively with Dutch number one and recent Tata Steel Champion, Grandmaster Anish Giri, and he is now a chessable author of Lifetime Repertoires, The Tarash Defense. So it's my great pleasure to welcome Grandmaster Jordan von Flores to the show. Welcome, Jordan. Hi, Ben. It's uh, it's my pleasure. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to uh, make an appearance on the podcast. I already told you briefly before, but I've been uh, listening to uh, some of your uh, pod- earlier podcasts and uh, think it's a great thing uh, what you're doing. 
Thanks. Much appreciated, Jordan. And obviously, I'm, I'm a big fan of uh, your chess and have enjoyed your interviews recently on C-Squared and uh, a little while back uh, on Levy Rod- Rosman's currently dormant podcast, Gotham City. Rest in peace to Gotham City podcast. We uh, we hope it rises again. But of course, Levy's a busy guy. Um, but Jordan, let's get to Tata Steel first and foremost. I know you talked about it a, li- with, a little with uh, Fabiano and Christian Cordilla. Uh, you also did some insightful post-game interviews with uh, Fiona Steele Anthony, but I got to talk to you about this game um, against your compatriot, Anish Giri. So you unleashed some crazy opening prep, and then you told Fiona after the game, um, you said, I found this really stupid idea, and I thought, let's give it a try. So I looked at the game, and of course, a lot of people will be listening to this rather than watching. Um, so we can't go into too many variations, but I'm curious, you're renowned for your opening prep, your creative ideas. When you do find a stupid idea, is that typically something that happens at the board or is it something that you cook up in the lab? Um, no, most of my uh, um, ideas are definitely cooked up uh, in the lab. Actually, the what specifically for Anish, um, I, I came up with it really briefly before the game. Um, I was I was planning to play a different line. And then I came up with this idea and I didn't really have any time to do any thorough analysis on it. So that's um, maybe that was actually a good thing because if I would have done so, I would have felt that maybe it was unplayable. But sometimes when you're, um, you know, when you find something so shortly before the game, you, you don't have the time to actually analyze it. And I just decided to basically play it on a whim. Of course, I checked a few lines. One of them happened on the board. But I would say that with generally most professional chess players, the ideas they come up with, they're not, uh, um, you know, going to be uh, thought of at the board because usually uh, they're not going to be as good and you want to have them well checked. So uh, definitely the, the, the same um, goes for this one. And um, well, the idea, I, it's kind of, I said it's stupid because really Black, if he finds a couple of good moves, is almost better, if not uh, definitely better. But, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's never easy when you're actually sitting at the board and you have this, um, pressure to actually find the best moves and you know your opponent is going to be um, prepared with a strong engine analysis um, and you're actually playing an engine instead of a uh, player. Yeah, and I've heard top players like yourself talk about the fact that if an engine dislikes something, like Fabiano has said, that actually makes it more appealing these days because if the engine just says something's good, everyone's going to have looked at it. Does does that factor into your calculus as well, Jordan? Well, of course, I mean, if the engine says it's bad, usually we don't look at it too much, but there are notable exceptions. And uh, um, I think that finding those exceptions is one of the uh, main, um, you know, fo- uh, things professional chess players focus on when they're preparing. Because, of course, the best moves, if you're just pressing the space bar or basically entering the first move, everyone is going to have looked at that. Um, sometimes it helps to look at them so you get a general feeling for the position, but... In general, everyone will have that basically well-checked and you're not going to get anywhere. So if you want to surprise the opening, you have to look at second-rate moves and um, and maybe sometimes go against the objective, um, objectively best move just to surprise your opponent. But of course, there are many cases and most of the cases, um, we I mean, you're, it's not like we're always going to play the, uh, a worse move because um, we're only interested in an idea when we think, when it seems the the opponent might be better, but actually it's not as easy as it seems. So, I mean, in most cases, of course, when you're making a bad move, the opponent just gets a nice position and, and that's not what you want. So you kind of want to bring them in a tough spot where maybe they're actually um, having a better position than before, but practically speaking, the position becomes so much harder to play. Okay, that that's helpful. And, and I'm curious, like you say, uh, I have a few questions that just curious to me as sort of a amateur player. Um, you say you only had a little bit of time to check it. Is that because you're trying to limit your prep time or is that because there's so much to check? I mean, people like Anish and Magnus, I can't imagine, like, how could you ever guess what they're going to play? Yeah, no, especially with these two guys. I mean, I think you just named the two guys which play the most diverse range of openings. They basically both can play anything. And I would say with Magnus, even more so than um, with Anish, it's basically just guesswork. But I guess in my case, it kind of helps that I've worked with Anish before. I, I know his preferences, um, things he might dislike a little bit more. Of course, it's still just guesswork. For example, I didn't, I wasn't sure um, he can play the Grunfeld, he can play the Slav defense, he can play the Ragozin defense, um, all main openings within um, his repertoire. But he can even play something 
like a King's Indian or Queen's Gambit accepted um, from time to time. So it's really just a lot of guesswork. And sometimes you guess right. Most of the time you uh, you do guess wrong. But I think being good at guessing what your opponent um, you know might want to play for this specific game against yourself um, is definitely uh, goes a long way to you know uh, having good preparation on the board and getting a successful result in the game. For example. If you look at my first half in the tournament, you would maybe notice that I got quite bad positions out of the opening, and actually my guess were, um, was bad, and um, that also led to re relatively bad results, for, whereas in the in the end of the tournament, I got positions I liked out of the opening. And Tata Steel, of course, being one of the most prestigious tournaments of the year, um, so you've got a guess, and that makes it more challenging. How much time are you prepping for each game in total, Jordan? Um, it really differs. I, I, I would say that I used to prepare a lot more than I do now. Um, the reason mainly being that the work has just sped up a lot. So the engines have become a lot stronger and things just go faster. So I also focus um, on conserving some energy. And that basically means that, for example, the night before the game, I'm not going to do as much preparation. I, I prefer to, you know, maybe watch a, a series, lay on bed, um, go for a walk or whatever, whereas I used to prepare a lot at night. So now I usually just prepare when I wake up. Um, so basically my daily routine will be I wake up 9.30, go for breakfast, and um, around 10 I start preparing with my coach. And let's say, um, okay, maybe we have a quick lunch in between, I take a shower, but basically I would say I prepare maybe three and a half hours before the game, which is definitely um, quite a lot, but not as much as I used to prepare. Um, and some people like to prepare less, some people like to prepare more. It's really a personal preference. Okay. And for the specific example of your game against Anish, how much time did you spend looking at, at this exchange sacrifice in particular? Um, maybe half an hour. I would say it's hard to say because um, I, I kind of, I'm working in different spots at the same time. So I might be checking this line, but at the same time I'm checking another line. It sounds a bit weird, but I'm kind of all over the place. So maybe half an hour. I definitely put it up on the board and I asked my coach um, because Sometimes when you're working with the engine, it gives you a bit of a biased um, view of the position. You cannot think straight anymore. So it really helps when you have kind of the human touch. And even if it's um, my coach is definitely not one of the best players in the world, but he's certainly a very strong player. And um, um, he will have maybe some human input, which the engine will, for example, not show and which I will not notice when I'm working with the engine. So I put the position on the board. I asked my, um, my second, actually, or coach, what would you play in this specific position? And that definitely helps. And I kind of noticed that he didn't seem to find the right moves immediately. And then I kind of started to think, well, maybe this is actually interesting for the classical game as well. And then I, of course, backed it up with some computer analysis. Okay. And is is it a secret who your second slash coach is? No, not at all. Um, it's Sipke Ernst. Um, he was one of my first trainers, actually my second real trainer. Um, so I worked with him starting when I was 13 years old and maybe worked for a couple of years, two, three years. Then I had a coach, Sergei Tivyakov, and I didn't really um, work with Sipka um, after that. Um, but we always stayed in touch. We've always been uh, on very good terms. We, we meet a lot. And um, at some point I was kind of looking for a second and uh, Sipka and me, we, like I said, we always had a good like chemistry together, I would say. So I asked him if he wanted to uh, accompany me to some uh, classical tournaments. So he has done that. This year to Vikings and also last year he was already accompanying me. Okay, yeah, I'm sure it's helpful to have someone there to bounce ideas off of and kind of um, yeah. see how see how they respond. Sorry, go ahead. Yeah, for sure. And also, you have to know that Vikings is a terrible uh, place at times. You know, um, I, I really like it there sometimes, but when you're playing bad tournament, you just need someone there to um, to make conversation with because it can be a really lonely place at times. Yeah, there, it, there's this weird dichotomy. There's this sort of dual perception where obviously it has this grand legacy as a chess institution and as a tradition, traditional tournament, but it's also January and dark <laughs> and then like a, a summer resort from what I've heard. Yeah, and this year it was particularly bad, I would say. There used to be snow, but that's not even that bad. This year it was just windy most of the time. And very rainy, and that just that just sucks. You can't really go outside. I have to say, finally, at the end of the tournament, it cleared up a bit the weather. But at the beginning, it was just really terrible. And um, um, as a Dutchman, of course, I'm kind of used to it, which definitely helps because some 
participants coming there for the first time, they're really like, um, you know, especially coming from a bit of the warmer countries, they're really wondering what they got themselves into. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, it can be uh, can be a surprise uh, to some people just coming for the first time. Um, it's the, the weather definitely uh, plays uh, plays a role in how your tournament goes. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, it's like the I'm, I bet when it's going poorly, like the the downs can get lower. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, for sure. Yeah, you, you lose the game, maybe you want to get some fresh air, and you're like, oh no, it's raining terribly. There's a lot of winds. I'm just gonna stay in my hotel room, but it doesn't improve the mood. Yeah, and of course you didn't you didn't start great by your standards, to be honest. So I'm sure it was helpful to have someone there. And that makes me another follow up about this this game against Anish in particular. So, and obviously in, in your game against Abdusatrov, of course, you also went for sort of a, a feisty line. Um, the fact that that you weren't contending for first place as you've done in the past does that make it easier to play risky openings? Do you think? Um, well, and generally, I don't really go into the tournament playing for first place so actually i would say i'm um indeed in my natural uh, <laughs> position when i'm somewhere at the bottom half of the tournament that's kind of normal i would say considering my ranking but of course i always come there with ambitions and indeed there was really no pressure on me uh, this time around um as well I, I i i mean at the end of the tournament i was just kind of looking forward to playing the two leaders which is of course you know kind of exciting they have something on the line and um i have a chance of you know um ruining their tournament, as I said in one of the interviews, and maybe kind of um, making my own tournament not as bad as it used to be. So definitely, uh, I was looking forward to those games, and I think that gave me some extra energy as well to, you know, um, play play some enterprising chess. Okay. And what on that specific game, I wasn't clear, um, not being someone who plays D4 as white, what was the specific novelty? Like you, you had this exchange sacrifice, and we shouldn't go into too many details. Although curious listeners can certainly look up the game, and I'm sure some of you even are familiar with the game. Was it the exchange sacrifice itself that was new? Because Anish also talked about this C4 and C5 idea that you played a, a bit later in the game. Oh yeah. Um, well, I think the first new move was H4. Um, if you want to get into the chess specifics, which. Um, I can kind of kind of came up with it because in a lot of lines, black pushes this uh, g5 pawn push, grabs space on the king side, and I was wondering, well, can't you stop that? Of course, um, it looks a bit weird. And if you follow the engine, it kind of suggests that, well, you can do that, but then you have to already immediately give up the exchange. And it's interesting that Anish, after the game, pointed out that actually he was aware of this idea. But the thing is, um, even if you're aware of it, maybe it's stored somewhere in your computer. Actually, remembering the details at the board is still a completely different story. If we, if all of the professional chess players could remember all of their um, files on their computer, um, um, I don't think chess would be as interesting as it's uh, right now. So, the human brain still has, you know, uh, its uh, its limits. Even for Anish. <laughs> Even for Anish, yeah. I mean, he knows so much. Um, I remember when I was started working with him for the first time. It was really. Um, something amazing to see how much he actually knew yeah you're, you're not the first person to uh to tell a story like that um <laughs> on this podcast and you're jordan you're always mentioned as a creative player anish um in i can't remember i watched your dutch tv interview which we'll get to as well uh that was that was fun to watch but i think that was where anish said that you have creativity beyond that of a regular grandmaster and we have a uh question from a supporter of the podcast supporters of the pod can send in questions and this one is on that theme so um roy lopes asks he says jordan is a very creative player and says quote no idea is too good or too bad to warrant his attention he said that was magnus who said that so he wonders in your games how you find the balance between taking risks and trying new ideas as opposed to playing solid lines. And in in addition to what I asked you about the tournament circumstances, he's also asking, he's wondering if this decision is influenced by the opponent you are facing. Um, yeah, so uh, the first question, um, how do I determine my ideas? It's, it's a good question. I don't even know myself. I, I just know that sometimes I I'm particularly attracted to an idea and for me, basically anything, anything goes. I don't, I don't mind the risks involved unless it's maybe like completely losing idea. I don't like to play losing lines. But if like the worst case scenario is maybe your opponent is going to be slightly better at the end of the day, but they need to find ten very hard moves, I'm not going to be, um, um, you know, um, not not playing that idea. So there's some idea. Some players who really like the objective uh, to play objective chess, and they don't like to play slightly dubious. 
moves in order to surprise their opponent but i kind of do like that so um, um of course sometimes i do make wrong calls and the idea actually backfires uh, maybe it was too risky but you know that's how it goes it's, it's a bit of a risky uh risky style but that's what i like and i have to say that nowadays it's becoming harder and harder to find those risky ideas because everyone is so well prepared everyone plays solid lines where it's becoming harder to find those ideas and if it's um if it's like if i decide on a certain opponent if I'll play the idea, I, I certainly would say that is the case. If I do know the opponent very well, for example, when I'm playing an open tournament, I might not know my opponents very well. But when I'm playing Vikanze, of course, even if I haven't played these guys too often, I have been following their game, so I'm quite familiar with their style. So, for example, you may think like a player like uh, Wesley So is going to be very solid. Um, so maybe you want to go for an attack against him or find some kind of idea like that. Um, whereas some uh, players might be crazy very uh, for example daniel dubov is an, is an easy example someone who likes to play very enterprising chess so maybe i'll try to hit him with a uh, more um you know simple and uh, strategic idea well, of course all these guys are extremely good at every aspect of the game but I, I kind of think about it a little bit at least and think about their opening repertoires and all that kind of stuff i think that's kind of part of uh, the preparation we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we will be right back with more from GM Jordan Von Forst. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable is the leading chess education platform known for its proprietary move trainer technology, which uses space repetition to help you remember stuff. What kind of stuff? Well, tactical patterns, opening sequences. It can even help you drill specific end games. And of course, they have a huge library of courses to help you do that. They have courses both from prominent grandmasters like uh, Grandmaster Jordan von Forrest, Magnus Carlsen, Sam Shanklin, and they also have Great material for cl for club players, from club players. They have stuff for purchase, stuff you can check out for free. So be sure to go to chessable.com and check out what they have that is new. You should know what that sound means. That's the sound of another sale on Shopify and the moment another business dream becomes a reality. Shopify is the commerce platform revolutionizing millions of businesses worldwide. So whether you're selling chess courses, chess boards, or something totally unrelated to chess, Shopify simplifies selling online and in person so you can focus on successfully growing your business. It covers every sales channel, whether it's in-person point of sale system or an all-in-one e-commerce platform platform. It even lets you sell across social media like TikTok, Facebook, Instagram, packed with industry-leading tools ready to ignite your growth. It gives you complete control over your business. And thanks to 24-7 help and an extensive course library, Shopify is there to help you every step of the way. What's incredible to me about Shopify is how no matter how big you want to grow, Shopify is there to empower you with the confidence and control to revolutionize your business and take it to the next level. So now it's your turn to get serious about selling to Shopify. So sign up for $1 a month trial period, shopify.com slash chess by using the code chess. You know that they came from Perpetual Chess. So that's shopify.com slash chess to take your business to the next level today. And we are back. And as a kid, obviously you were a top player, although you got a relatively late start for someone who's um, made it to your level. Um, do you do you think there was anything you were doing in your training that sort of built your creative muscle, or do you think it's natural? Uh, I would say it's part of my personality. Um, I have a lot of uh, bad qualities, for example. Um, I would say I'm terrible at cleaning up stuff. I'm very sloppy. I lose my stuff all the time. And um, I think that kind of goes together with being creative. Um, so definitely it has its negative sides. So um, I've, never, I've never been good at planning ahead, for example, and, um, um, you know, you know um, what, um, being a tidy uh, and organized um, human. But okay, um, it has its advantages as well. So some point I thought, like, of course, it's good to work on some of your weaknesses, maybe even not on a chessboard, but in life. But then, um, again, maybe if you work on some of those weaknesses, some of your strengths can disappear. So it's a bit of an interesting trade-off, although in general, I do uh, recommend on working on your things you're bad at. But it's never as easy as it, <laughs> as it may seem. So what did you consider your weaknesses as you were kind of climbing up the ranks? Well, it's, I think one of my main weaknesses is still blundering too often. I, I wouldn't say I'm one of the most accurate players. There are uh, many more accurate 
players out there than me. Even in the Vikings A tournament, um, I made some really uh, stupid blunders. And also, I, I may have some tendency to maybe um, make strategical errors, but it's it's hard to say um, exactly. I, I would say that definitely blundering growing up has always been my, my main main weaknesses. My main weakness, I should say. And um, sometimes when I don't blunder, I can play really good chess. For example, in 2021, I don't think I blundered any 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 uh, tactics in the in the Vikings A tournament, and actually I won the tournament. Whereas, for example, this year. In the beginning of the tournament, I made some uh, really bad blunders. Well, Jordan, basically everyone listening to this can uh, can identify with that. I certainly can. Um, yeah. So we all want to know, what did you do to, to limit your blunders? Uh, I guess just becoming a better chess player. <laughs> no, we want something easy. <laughs> uh, want a shortcut. <laughs> the interesting thing is actually, um, I can tell you that, um, so there's a lot of tactics apps out there. Um, but what I would say that those, Tactics or, or websites, uh, you know, and all the all the websites have a tactics trainer. They they, they train you to um, spot tactics, of course, for yourself. But actually, they don't teach you how to avoid tactics in a in a way. And um, my mom actually, uh, she's a uh, programmer. She built an app which kind of um, focuses on also spotting threats and a uh, and a tactics trainer, which I did uh, very. Uh, rigorously when I was about 14 to maybe 17 years old. The app has kind of, it was never meant to be commercial. It was more made for the family, although I think it's available somewhere on the internet. And um, definitely this app um, helped me uh, a lot. So I did it every day um, for maybe an hour or so, spotting the opponent's threats. So she, for example, developed a, a segment into the app called um, Threats, which means you have to, sh- to, um, to um, identify the threat and also something called Blind chess so you have to spot a tactic maybe from eight moves away so you are given the first eight moves and then it's like here solve this position another another interesting uh, thing she developed was a choose the move um, segment which basically gives you a position taken from a grandmaster game for example and you're given two moves one of them was played by the grandmaster and is wrong and the other one is the computer's best choice and actually it's never at all easy to identify which one is the best move even if you're just given two moves, because of course, all these moves are played by strong players. And she kind of um, set boundaries. So for example, the move cannot be blundered, the evaluation between the best engine move and the grandmaster move can no, be no more than 100 centipawns. So a lot of these um, things help me, I guess, but uh, mostly yeah, just working a lot on chess and uh, playing tournaments is, uh, is, uh, is really useful. You finally revealed the secret to the Van Forest success. <laughs> I think if you uh, if you uh, check out maybe my website, um, it's a bit outdated, but uh, you'll find a link somewhere to the uh, to the app. It's called Real Chess, although I'm not sure it's still available. So yeah. Okay. Well, I'll look it up, and if it's there, I'll put a link to it in the notes, listeners. And if it's not, I'll uh, put an apology <laughs> in the notes. <laughs> but but we're we're glad to hear that. And I'd also just give a quick shout out to uh, Dalton Perrine's uh, Survive and Thrive course on Chessable, especially for club players. Uh, also, sort of, it sounds like it hits on some of the same themes. But Jordan, hearing you talk about how your mom kind of helped you behind the scenes uh, makes me uh, think of another question we have from a supporter of the pod. Um, this is from Brian Karen, the founder of the uh, chess book, uh, excuse me, the Facebook chess book collectors group, which is like 50,000 members strong. I know you've read wow. some chess books, Jordan. It's uh, kind of crazy to see um, all the discussion of every book. Anyway, Brian's question is, taking into account your great-great-grandfather, who was a Dutch national champion, and uncle, your impressive siblings, your brother is a grandmaster, your sister is uh, WIM, Mokteld van Forest, rising star in Dutch chess, and yourself, what is it that makes the Von Forest family so successful at chess? Do you draw inspiration from your relative success, or is it a coincidence that they happen to be strong chess players? Yeah, for me, it really was a pure coincidence. I didn't know that they were strong chess players until I maybe became a decent chess player myself. Um, so basically, the chess skipped a few generations in our family. My father didn't play any real chess. Um, maybe he was at the club, but he's no more than maybe a 1,200 player. Um, my grandfather the same actually he got into chess because we got into chess at some point again so he played once in the amateur sections in Vikings A but I'm pretty sure he had forgotten about chess um, for a few decades as well so I really see it more as a co- coincidence but um, of course it's very hard 
to say, but I I could imagine that the that you know the genes are are um, part some you know some talent is 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 there um, in in um, you know within uh, our family I guess some kind of special chess talent. It's hard to <laughs> pinpoint exactly what that would be, but um, it's definitely uh, quite surprising if you think about it that um, like a hundred years ago uh, in our family there were two really good chess players. So in general, I think uh, talent plays more of a role than people maybe think initially at least if you want to get to the very very top so i think anyone can basically become a very good chess player um but if you want to become like um top 100 or maybe number one in the world i think talent will start playing a role even if you work very hard you'll at some point just maybe not have any progress anymore or less than someone who would um, put in the same amount of effort but just has maybe a little bit more talent for example i think uh Magnus just has so much talent. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, obviously, you've talked about this in, in other interviews, but getting to do training camps with Magnus, like, uh, was there anything in particular that impressed you? Was there anything that you're, I mean, obviously, his reputation precedes him, but was there anything that when you witnessed it up close uh, took you by surprise? Um, well, I have a funny story that when he joined the training camp on the first day, we started to play some blitz. And then um, maybe after like four or five games, he's like, "Okay, we'll continue till I win a game." But I, I just didn't. I just didn't win a game, you know. So after ten, after he won like ten games in a row, maybe I made one draw in between. He's like, "Okay, we'll uh, <laughs> we'll take a break." So, um, what makes him so good? It's hard. It's hard to say. But um, what I kind of noticed is that he just understands the game better than others, and that's a little bit strange if you think about think about it because. For example, from number two to number maybe fifteen in the world, people have always people are kind of changing. Like, um, for example, Anish has been number two in the world. Ding has been number two in the world. Maxime Pashelegraf has been number two in the world. But then there's Magnus, who's always been number one. So he clearly just understands the game a little bit better than than the rest. And um, why he does, it's hard to say. Um, but I definitely think there is some kind of uh, special talent that he possesses that other do- others don't. And you cannot. Um, make up for that by working hard i think it's something innate um but like i said you can become a very very strong chess player um even if you'll have not as much talent as magnus does that's a relief (laughs) Um, and i heard you i think it was in your interview with levy rosman you mentioned that magnus in these training camps kind of keeps his distance from the engine he likes to be shown things on the chess set you guys kind of present it to him um, is that something that, like, did you take something away from that for your own chest? Did that alter your approach at all, Jordan? No, I would say I'm very much addicted to working with the engine when I'm uh, training myself. So I guess it's just the kind of way I grew up playing the game. I feel like I can learn a lot from the engine. Magnus, on the other hand, indeed does seem to kind of prefer keeping a more fresh approach, um, not being biased by the engine. But personally, I see the engine as a great analytical tool um it's they're the best chess players in the world basically if you think about it so why not try and learn how they approach certain structures certain openings um try to learn from them so i i try to use them as a training tool but it's very hard um i see i see many uh many players um they just um and of course myself also they just stop thinking themselves entirely when they work with the engine and that's the danger so um it's it's hard you know to kind of keep thinking yourself while using the engine um because um you you're just easily you just kind of like zoomed into the little box of the engine showing the moves and you're just not even looking at the chessboard anymore so it's happened to everyone but um i think if you find the right balance um between looking at the board yourself, looking um, what the position is about, and at the same time use, u- using the engine as a tool, I think it's tremendously um, useful. But of course, what Magnus does also works uh, very well for him. So I think there's just different approaches and there's not one necessarily better than the other. Okay. And these days, are you primarily using cloud-based engines or are you still running them on your computer? Um, I think I stopped using engines running on my computer maybe in 2018 or something um when one of my dutch colleagues told me about um well you know that you can actually um at the time i was using chess based cloud that you can use chess based cloud to rent engines and they're going to be like 10 times as strong as your laptop before that i was always you know looking for the best kind of laptop spec- specifications on the website maybe looking at the amount of cores or whatever 
Um, at some point, I even bought a desktop PC because, of course, you can put um, more um, CPU power in that. But nowadays, when I'm, for example, buying a laptop, I just only focus on the weight and, uh, and uh, you know, I don't, I don't want it to, to be too big. I want it mostly to be um, um, easy to carry around. So really, uh, I think all professionals switch to um, using their engines on the cloud. It's simply so much more convenient. You pay a little, but really, at the end of the day, it's um, well worth your, uh, your, your, the price. Okay, and are you still using chess-based cloud? No. Um, the reason being that, first of all, um, well, I found cheaper options, but at the same, also um, sometimes when you're playing tournaments, you can um, see that all the engines are going to be used by your competitors, which I didn't really like. And um, also there's a slight risk that um, one of the engines you're using um, it's a bit hard to say, but if you're renting out an engine, for example, I, anyone can rent out an engine for others to use at a certain price, and people can rent that engine, but actually the person renting out the engine can see what the other person is analyzing, and they can see the name of the person um, who's using it. So, of course, what you could do, you could create an anonymous account, but still, I didn't like that it wasn't fully anonymous. Um, definitely one of the things I think could be improved. Um, but I, I currently just have a... Um, a cheaper and, in my opinion, better um, way of working uh, with engines. Okay, yeah, there was, of course, that story during the Magnus Nepo match where one one of the um, uh, someone had been looking at one of the lines that appeared. <laughs> do Do you have any uh, inside intel you could share on that story, Jordan? Uh yeah, there was definitely a little bit of panic. I I don't think I was personally um, as concerned, but other team members may have been. Um, Very diplomatically, <laughs> yeah. It was, <laughs> it was very strange. Like, um, I don't think finally, finally we decided like it could have just been random. We don't know what happened. Um, but definitely, um, yeah, there was a little bit of concern. So we, what did, what did we, what did we even do? I, I don't think we did actually anything in specific, um, but, um, um, we just, uh, we, we decided we were going to be uh, extra careful, I guess, um, from that moment onwards, but it was it was definitely surprising um, because it was one of those very obscure lines which was somehow already checked before the game was played. So it could also have been from the opponent's team um, that someone of them uh, left the because if you're working in chess base, which basically all professionals do, you have a certain thing called the live book where if you you can switch it on or off. Usually, most people switch it off, but you can by accident leave it on, and then the moves you're analyzing are actually being put in the live book. So. Um, either just a totally random person analyzing this totally random line um, by chance analyzed this, or one of the team members of either uh, Napo or uh, Magnus left it on, but we never figured out who it was. But it was definitely uh, a bit of a uh, reason for at least some concern. But fortunately, finally in the match, I don't think it really uh, mattered. And uh, yeah. Okay, with your story about like losing your keys, I was a little worried that, that you, <laughs> you had been implicated. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I mean. Could have been me. I don't think it was. I always have it switched off. It's actually never on. But um, like I said, we. Uh, it, I'm. I'm definitely one of the <laughs> sloppier guys. So if um, I'm, I'm very used to losing keys. Uh, I lost my laptop or a passport, for example, a few times as well. So uh, yeah, uh, you know, uh, looking after myself definitely not my strong suit. Well, Magnus is famous for that too, right? Really? I feel like he is. Yeah, I feel I feel like I've heard stories of of him losing. Uh, maybe it's his phone a bunch of times or something like that. But um, anyway, I, I think, yeah, yeah. All of chess players I know seem to you know not be able to look after their stuff um, <laughs> uh, very well. Um, I don't know if that's the thing generally with chess players or just the people I uh, I surround myself with. But uh, yeah, maybe Magnus uh, Magnus is also you know. Uh, Somehow, like we're always thinking about chess or whatever, and then suddenly you look and where's my phone or what? Where did I leave my keys or whatever? Yeah, so uh, they were just a bit. Uh, we're always a bit confused. Okay, well, well, Jordan, we've got a bit of time left, and I should say for listeners, Jordan um, graciously is how to chess season three is recording, and we're going to do actually two pods. So we're going to do a bit more on perpetual chess, and then we will record a separate interview about Jordan's chess role models that will be released later. But Jordan, I want to get a bit behind the scenes of your recent Dutch talk show appearance. Um, I believe the show is called Sorry and Sophie. Yeah, thank you. Um, so it's Khaled and Sophie, Dutch popular general interest talk show filmed in front of a studio audience. So 
first of all, you and Anish crushed it. So congratulations. It was nice to see that you guys, I mean, obviously it's primarily for a Dutch audience, but yeah. it was posted on YouTube with subtitles that I'll link to, but, but you guys are great representatives for chess and that's uh, always nice to see. But to me, it must like watching from the outside, it must've felt mildly surreal. Like what, what was that experience like for you? And how does that compare to playing, say a high stakes OTB chess game? Um, yeah, well, first of all, I'm happy you managed to, uh, find a video with subtitles because I was like, kind of wondering uh, if you got anything, but that's good. So um, actually I've done a couple of these things before. Um, there's another Dutch uh, popular pod, or, or sorry, talk show, I'm saying podcast here, but um, talk show called Yinek, which I've appeared on twice. So I kind of knew what was going to happen. That's also why I wasn't actually very nervous before the start of this one. But I can tell you that when I won Vike two years ago, I, I also, um, was allowed to uh, you know come on a on a talk show and that one was the one called Yinek and I remember one one of the producers said before the talk show like you know Jordan it's really important that if you want to go to the restroom you have to go now because during the um you know during the uh, what is it called the broadcast you can't you're not allowed to leave the seat yeah and of course my item was like right at the very end so maybe the talk show in almost one hour and I was at minute fifty and around minute you know, 40, I started feeling like, okay, I need to go to the toilet. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> It was really bad. Um, so I kind of sat there, you know, going, um, you know, bouncing around a little bit. Um, and at some point I decided, look, okay, I can't handle it anymore. So when there was like a little video shown on some other item, I asked one of the producers, um, well, can I please visit the restroom? And he's like, looked over to his colleague. He's like, yes, you can, but 30 seconds stops. So I went, came back. And actually after that, I felt um, very relieved. So, uh, you know, um, doing the talking bit was super easy from then on. So that's when I was very nervous. But uh, this time also, I think um, being there with Anish was kind of nice. Um, it's always nicer when it's two of us. Um, I think it was just, uh, yeah, we had a little fun evening. It wasn't uh, anything uh, super special, actually. But it's always nice when there's some interest shown in uh, in chess. Um, of course, we, uh, we very much uh, embrace that and are happy to see. So that's why we decided to do it. Nice. It's funny, but as a classical player, you should be used to like plotting out your bathroom <laughs> trips, you know? Yeah, but somehow during um, chess games, you're, you're allowed to go whenever you can. So, um, of course, it's at own risk. You may lose the game on time or you have to go in time trouble. But here he really said like it's they said like it's a no go. So um, I guess it was a bit different. Um, but yeah, maybe I have to work on planning my bathroom <laughs> trips a bit more. Okay. We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors, and then we will be right back with more from GM Jordan von Forst. Perpetual Chess is brought to you in part by AimChess.com. AimChess has an algorithm that gathers your games from the major chess playing sites like Chess.com and Lee Chess, and then gives you actionable intel on how to improve your game. It evaluates different phases of the game, tells you how you're doing with certain openings, and they're constantly rolling out new features to make Aim Chess even better. Some of the new ones include a blunder preventer drill that you can do, and they've now got blindfold exercises where you can work on your chess visualization skills. So be sure to check out Aim Chess if you have not already. And if you decide to subscribe, then use the code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. You can also click on the link in the show description to aimchess.com. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And we are back. And uh, speaking of, of classical, I feel like there's been more and more talk about the move online, the move to faster chess. Um, you're a young guy. I've heard you mention that you don't consider yourself a great blitz player, um, at least in comparison to classical. Do you, How do you feel about this, this raging debate of uh, classical chess, in Magnus's words, potentially being phased out? Well, I def definitely don't think it's ever going to be phased out because... Um, it's still the most popular, actually, maybe no more. I was going to say it's the most popular time control at every lower, at every low, at every level, except for the very highest level. But of course, now everyone is playing online, which is a bit different. 
Um, but I would say that only the preparation of extremely deep, um, you know, openings um, comes in in at the very high level. So maybe if you're speaking above 2600 level, which is maybe only very, very small uh, percentage of the actual amount of chess players. So at any other level, there's really no need to have this kind of amount of opening preparation. Although, of course, it's becoming more. I mean, everyone is becoming more booked up. Um, chessable courses being available everywhere. Opening books are becoming better, but still. The, the the opening preparation is not going to be the same as uh, of the professional players. But even if you look at a tournament like Wijk and Zee, um, I think you see plenty of decisive results. I don't think that that there's a problem of draws in chess. I think maybe the, the main thing or the main reason why people prefer faster time controls is because it's just more um, um, what fits in with the contemporary world, um, with everything going faster, everything being done on a... Uh, second by second basis you have all these social media apps which constantly you know um, give you new feedback um show you new things so people don't have the patience anymore to watch a seven hour chess game people prefer watching a chess game that max uh, lasts 10 minutes maximum so i think that's that's one of the reasons um why uh, we see the shift towards rapid and blitz personally i enjoy all all time controls actually Maybe um, I, I enjoy Blitz the most, but like I, like you already mentioned, I, I think I'm it's my worst time control simply because I blunder too much. Um, but um, I, I I really hope that all the time controls will uh, will stay, and I think actually this year is a good good year for classical chess uh, with the fide cycle being there. And um, I heard, for example, from Anish that he's playing a lot of classical tournaments. So I think um, for now, you know, we 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 should just try to keep all the uh, time controls around and um, if there's more blitz that's great but um, it would be a, a pity uh, to see classical chess uh, fade away um, only because Magnus says he is maybe not as interested anymore I, um, really the idea I get this from most people is that they're still very much interested in classical uh, classical chess though glad to hear it and and Jordan what do you have coming up tournament wise um, actually very little at the moment I'm playing uh first classical tournament in uh, Sweden, in Malmö in May, I believe. I may play a couple of open tournaments in April or um, probably not March, but for me it's a bit of a, uh, a quiet period. I'm having a training camp pretty, pretty soon probably, but tournament-wise it's it's quiet. And that's, that's because um, um, although there are many classical tournaments, I think this year for the absolute top players, I think that for people in my spot it's not as easy to find tournaments. Um, because okay, the open tournaments are not necessarily as interesting and very uh and lucrative. Well, there's still a quite decent opposition there. It's not exactly what I'm looking for, and the absolute highest top tournaments are um you know a little bit out of the question. So it's not that easy, but uh, I'm sure I'll find something. Does does that bother you at all? Like do you, do you do you feel any sort of injustice about it, or just it is what it is? Yeah, I think that's just what it is. I mean, you see in every sport that people want to have the best players. Um, but it does give me motivation to get better at, at chess. And um, maybe this does mean that sometimes I have to play a tournament, which is not going to be able to give me as much income just to try and increase my rating, which um, I actually tried that earlier in December in an open tournament in Sigis. I don't really usually play open tournaments anymore, but... Um, also, I know that these tournaments are very tough. Everyone is going to be underrated, and um, you're easily easily uh, losing rating. So, actually, I lost 10 points there, but I might uh, give it another shot. Um, but, yeah, I think it's just what it is. It's always it's always been that way that um, the top players, you know, get uh, to play the most interesting tournaments. I think that it should be that way, but, um, of course, I would always, uh, you know, welcome uh, new tournaments, uh, maybe for players who are not at the very top, but are still uh, very, very good. So uh, that would be nice, of course. Uh, reasonable perspective. And, and Jordan, I asked you how you worked on your game when you were younger. Now, as you mentioned, you're, I mean, obviously an incredible player, um, but still striving to get better. How do you work on your game now? Um, well, I would say that a lot of time goes into um, working with the engine on openings most of the time, actually. Um, but, for example, I also try to keep fresh. Um, I don't really use my mom's app that much anymore, but I uh, I I do from time to time. Also, I think that um, websites do have excellent tactics trainers, which I like to use. Um, and 
a lot of practice as well you know with other strong players helps helps um helps me so there's a lot of you can always find a game online for example to play which i think is is good practice sometimes i read a book which is not really um which i don't really see as training but it's definitely always going to be a bit useful and it's mostly uh enjoyment but i would really say that um most of my time is simply working on in a uh, at home with the uh, with the engine uh, which i do enjoy but um it's uh yeah it's just what it is i guess okay and any books you've particularly enjoyed lately lately um Okay, well, I haven't read it yet, but I really want to. It's I've written the foreword actually of the book. I haven't read it entirely. <laughs> Sounds really weird, but um, um, I, I I know it's really it's a really good book. Um, so I wanna I wanna start um on uh, Tiviakov's um Rock Solid Chess um book, which just came out by New Chess. So I think that one. Um, but yeah, usually it's just going to be some opening books, but nothing otherwise uh, really particularly I enjoyed, I think. Okay. And we will be discussing books a little more in our How to Chess segment, which we should uh, get to momentarily, Jordan. So we'll wrap things up here on Perpetual Chess. But I did want to discuss your Tarash course briefly. Tarash was actually my first opening against D4. So it has a, a special place in my heart. And I, I, like you say in the course, I've always felt like it's a bit... Um, underutilized, especially because I know club players are often looking for open positions against uh, D4. And you mentioned your King's Indian player. I think a lot of them, even though it's not necessarily open, it's at least attacking. So a lot end up on the King's Indian. But what was your odyssey to uh, to selecting the Tarash? Um, yeah, well, what you mentioned, I feel a lot of players want to look for an attacking repertoire against 1d4 and against e4 it's quite simple of course you get the sicilian defense and you can basically pick anyone you like the knight or variation time of um dragon whatever but against 1d4 it's not as easy of course there's the king's indian defense um i don't think it should be called the defense actually it's more of an attack but okay there's already another opening for that um when white plays that way but i always had a soft spot for the king's indian defense i really like the opening but what i've come to notice is that in a lot of positions and variations black is not actually attacking and the position or positions become relatively close and actually the play becomes extremely strategical and hard to play for both sides actually so it's a really interesting opening but i think at its core the king's indian nowadays is more of a strategic opening um, which is really interesting but um um i i I feel like um there should be other ways as well you know to play an enterprising game against 1d4 and um I wanted to learn something new myself as well. And then I basically stumbled upon the Tarish defense. Um, it's been played very much by Kasparov in his early uh, early 20s, maybe or early career at least. And um, he did really tremendously well with it unle- until he hit, uh, you know, the, the great player that Anatoly Karpov is. But until then, he had some ma- massive victories with it. He, uh, he crushed the uh, opposition. Um, um, in style and really the Tarish has been kind of under the radar ever since you know there's been some 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 ideas here and there especially the Dubov Tarish has come around but I I felt like the proper Tarish the 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 you know the um the traditional Tarish should should you know deserves um a new um a new look so I kind of started to look at it and actually if you look at it with the modern engines you can notice that it's perfectly playable and the great thing about this is all also that you do need to get open positions, but it's a super easy repertoire. It really works against um, D4 um, um, super smoothly. You don't have to worry about move orders too much. You just play D5, E6, C5, bring out the knight, bishop E7, and castle. And that 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 part I liked very much. I've played it a couple of times. I would say that the positions are um, very dynamic, very interesting. So if you want to add a new you know line to your repertoire, definitely uh, go check it out. Yeah, and of course, we will link to that. It's obviously you're getting an isolated queen pawn some of the time, although not necessarily in the C4 line that that you recommend. Um, and the other thing I would just mention for listeners is, as always, or as frequent with Chessable, there's a short and sweet variation, so uh, listeners can check it out for free. Um, so just one or two more questions here on Perpetual Chess, Jordan. Uh, this has been awesome. Number one, uh, and you can punt on this if you feel the need, but Ding or Nepo, how do you, how do you handicap that match? I was definitely gonna say Ding before Vikanze, but now I, I honestly might have to change my mind here. What Ding showed in Vike, of course, it doesn't 
necessarily have to uh, influence his match against Napo, but I mean, I, I can't imagine it gave it did him any good. Um, there's been um, cases, for example, where Caruana did very well after um, doing terribly in Vike in the candidates tournament, but in general, losing 23 ratings or what it, what whatever it was in Vikanze cannot have given him any confidence. And uh, Napo should it should have brought Napo a lot of confidence, I guess. So honestly, might have to uh, go with Napo uh, in this one. Uh, now, although I I really hope for a super exciting exciting match. Um, and I, I'm sure it will be actually. So either way, it's going to be close. But I think by this point, I'm uh, I'm going with Naples simply because of things uh, by Kanze result, um, and maybe the fact that he hasn't played a lot as well uh, ever after the candidates tournament. So yeah. Okay. Yeah, I kind of lean in the same direction. And let me ask you, Jordan. You talk in your C squared interview as did Anish about sort of the evolution of your relationship. Obviously, you worked for him for years. Um, then you worked with Magnus, and it. it came out a little bit that maybe there was a bit of friction about that. And I really appreciate it. And I think a lot of chess fans did the way that you guys addressed that. And it was great to hear that obviously you guys are doing talk shows together, you and Anish and uh, communicating. But basically, this is a long way of asking if you were invited to work on the team of Nepo or Ding, A, would you be interested in B, like, is that even allowed under your current sort of uh, professional arrangement? <laughs> I have to think about uh, both questions. I'm pretty sure would be allowed, but um, it would be. Uh, I'm not sure it's what what I want right now. I would say that I've been working a lot with players, and it's brought me tremendously much. Uh, both working for Anish and working for Magnus, I've learned so much from working with the both of them. But currently, I'm already 23 years old. You look at some of the youngsters; they're 16 years old, like Gukesh, and I feel like it's uh, time I uh, really uh, work uh, for myself and. Um, start improving my own game so definitely wouldn't um entirely say no but at the moment i'm mostly interested in uh working for myself that makes sense and i know you again you mentioned uh you um took took inspiration from honest sitting at the computers 10 hours straight when when you work with him <laughs> yeah no his uh, his drive to work is uh something i haven't i've never seen uh before so uh huge huge respect uh for that i don't know how he does it but um it's definitely, uh, you know, I think a talent to, there's definitely a talent to work hard and he definitely possesses it as well. So, yeah. And he, sorry, I meant to ask you this earlier. And he, unlike Magnus, he's at the computer when he's working. He's not setting it up on a board. Yeah, no, like what I said, there's definitely different approaches uh, to working. I would say Anish works in more or less the same way as me. Of course, there's going to be slightly, uh, slight differences here and there. He's more structured when he works. Um, he has certain preferences, but in at its core, we both work at our laptop with our engine. So if we're having a training camp, for example, um, it's going to be Anish with his laptop, me with his laptop, um, maybe a couple other people with their laptops. And there's going to be a chessboard, but it's going to be the, the chessboard that's, uh, you know, it's not going to be touched as much as the computer's virtual uh, chessboards. So that's basically simply how we work. Um, and I would say that really Magnus is more of an exception than a rule at how he works. Um, if you look at the current players, um, at least from what I know, um, is that most of them do like to work with the engine and um, Magnus basically really distancing himself from the input of the engine is is very interesting. But you should, of course, not forget that he gets to see a lot of computer lines. I mean, all the, all the files he looks at, all the analysis he receives is going to be backed up by extremely strong engines. It's just not that he actually switched on, on the engine himself. So um, he's going to see all the best moves in all the positions um, and he is able to do this as well because he's able to have a strong team to work for him um, at uh, most tournaments he plays. But uh, yeah, what I said, it's it's a bit a bit it's a bit unusual. But uh, of course, um, I mean you can't uh, argue with uh, the, the success he has had. So um, yeah, you certainly cannot. All right, well, Jordan, we're gonna do another quick interview. But thanks for coming on Perpetual Chess, listeners. Be sure to check out. Uh, the Tarash Defense Lifetime Repertoires. Do you do you have a preferred social media for uh, listeners to uh, to root you on, Jordan? Ah, uh, yeah, you can check out my Twitter. I'm I'm not as active as uh, my countryman Anish Giri, but I tweet uh, a couple times a year. So uh, yeah, you can uh, you can check me out there, and uh, I also post once or twice on Instagram. But uh, I think Twitter is uh, is what most chess players are into. 
Okay, sounds good. And thank you, Jordan. Uh, that's been a, been an honor, and uh, I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, uh, Ben. It's been uh, it's been my pleasure. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters, those who choose to join that community based on their level of support support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on... Podcast Network. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.